0: Hey, Good morning to all of our friends online. I just want to say to you, um, I was thinking about it earlier this week, you know, on any given Sunday morning, this typically can't happen at Legacy, but sometimes people sneak into the back and they sneak out for the sermon and we don't get to meet them. But as I said, at our Legacy site, it's so small that if you come in, what happens? You are well loved at Legacy, aren't you? Um, And So my prayer is just that if if you're online with us, um, we have not forgotten about you. Uh, We are a three-site church now with one of our sites being online. Misty Richardson, our communications director, is is online right now. Please interact with her. If there's something Dean or I can be praying about or our elders uh, can be helping you with, please let us know. you are with us right now, and we know that in this, this moment. But uh, for those of us in the room, uh, it's good to, uh, to hear your voices singing and to, uh, to be in worship with you. I'm in a super uh, excited, jazzed up, fired up mood, not only because it seems to me that the rains have left us for the summer, but also because it's Baptism Sunday season. We tried this last year for the first time and uh, went out to the East Gallatin Recreation Area. If you weren't with us, you saw the pictures. It was glorious. I'm looking at those pictures going, we should probably have a few more face masks on this year and be a little bit more socially distanced on the beach, uh, but I, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that you'll join, uh, join in for that next Sunday. We have got a couple uh, signed up to be baptized, a few more signed up to remember their baptisms. It's going to be a good time. And that's what we're talking about this morning. This morning we're going to talk about water. Next Sunday we're going to talk about baptism, but the two will kind of blend in uh, with one another. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in to probably the most well-known verse in all of Scripture. Let me pray. God, we, uh, we confess, Lord, that um, we are a distracted people Lord, we come to you this morning, and uh, uh, Lord, we, we, we know that there are uh, distractions that abound in our lives, Lord, whether it be uh, the media, the news, the hype, the agendas. God, so we just right now lay all of that at your feet, and God, we pray as we open up your word, Lord, that you would speak to us. God, we're open to you right now. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we just pray. We know that your word is alive and well, that it's active, living, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, uh, God, we pray humbly and readily, God, change us. Lord, make us and mold us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. If you have your Bibles... Turn with me to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. We're going to read verses 16 to 20. And if you don't, you've probably already all but memorized this this passage this morning. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. So in 1871, the city of Chicago burned to the ground. Anybody remember that story? Great Chicago fire left over 300 people dead and 100,000 people homeless. Just consider that. But what baffles historians to this day is how so much of the city burned when there was a river flowing right through it. The Chicago River should have stopped the fire dead in its tracks, but it proved to be completely worthless. In fact, get this. Scientists actually believe the river fueled the flames. And here's why. Long before the fire, the local stockyards made it a regular practice to dump animal waste into the waters, and then the factories nearby would drain their leftovers into the mix, and the sewage of that river was so prevalent it was actually combustible. So the locals nicknamed it Bubbly Creek. And after the fire, things just got worse from there. Waterborne disease broke out, and for decades, tens of thousands of people then died every year until the late 1800s, when over 100,000 died in one year. The city knew they had to do something about this issue. So finally, late 1800s, they adopted a new project that made the Panama Canal seem small. They dug out 28 miles of new waterways with their own locks and gates to control the flow. And in 1900, at the base of Lake Michigan, they opened up the floodgates and the Great Lakes now poured into the Chicago River, pushing it in a direction it had never flowed before. It literally reversed the entire waterway. The fresh water wiped the sewage into the canals, which now poured into the Illinois River and eventually into the Mississippi, and they literally pushed the problem upstream and then downstream. And now instead of sewage killing the masses, this water now brought the city new life. Some argue to this day that had that engineering feat not have been pulled off, Chicago as we know it would not exist. So what's the moral of the story? I'll give you a hint, it has nothing to do with pushing your problems downstream. (laughs) The moral of the story is, water is life. Water is life. In fact, if you do a survey of the scriptures, you would find this is a God-given concept and reality. In the very beginning, God's word tells us there was a river in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2 talks about how this spring flowed from one into two and then three and then four rivers, actually. The Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, the Euphrates. And it was by these waters that God gave life to everything. Life begins with this spring where paradise flourishes in this garden. Plants, trees, animals... Humans, water from the very beginning of God's story equals life. This summer, my, uh, my brothers and I have been hard at work uh, planning this, what we're calling the hunt of a lifetime for my dad. Um, Pops drew an elk tag that took over 12 years to, to land in this area down in Colorado, and so this fall, it's gamed on. But here's our challenge. Um, In order to get to the hunting unit, we've got a four-wheel drive to 11,000 feet, and then we've got to hike five more miles from there just to get to base camp where we'll hunt. You know the biggest concern of the hunt though, if you picked up on the theme, it's not how we're gonna get the elk back to the car, we'll figure that out later, it's water. At that elevation, the only way to combat altitude sickness is to drink a ton of water. The problem is there's nothing available on tap. Water equals life. We know this. And yet for some reason from Genesis on in the scriptures, God points to this basic reality time and time again as though we don't. Adam and Eve, they choose sin, right? Right? We know the story. They're cut off from the garden. They're cut off from this life given spring. The the garden is no longer theirs to dwell in. Life is no longer bliss. But this concept of water gets put on repeat over and over again, almost as this reference, time and time again, to what should have been. Just consider the scriptures with me. Uh, Go to Jacob. You might remember the story of Jacob in Genesis 25. Jacob is on the run from his own sin and struggles. Life is chaos, fear is rampant, right? And one day he finds himself in the middle of this desert, the middle of nowhere, and he comes across a well. Scriptures say there were these flocks of sheep laying all around it. And it's at this well, it's at this source of life that Jacob discovers this shepherdess named Rachel. And it's through in this encounter, this encounter by that water that Jacob marries and becomes the father of Israel and the story of God's people are born. Well, down the road, Jacob uh, has this enormous family of sons, you might remember, later known as the Israelites, but his sons can't get along. Competition is ripe within the family. One son in particular is envied by all the rest, and so his brothers, you'll remember, sell them to foreigners. Remember that? That was the story of Joseph. So there's this series of god ordains events, though, and Joseph becomes one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt, which is ironic because a drought comes to the land. There is no water. There is no life. The nations are dying. People are in desperation. And his brothers come, begging, hoping, longing for something of sustenance. And as they enter Joseph's house, instead of taking revenge on them, the first thing they're offered by Joseph's servant is water. Look at this, Genesis 43:24. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house, he gave them water and they washed their feet. Was that on the screens before though? Were you cheating? Soon after that, all of Israel is now in Egypt, right? Because of the water and the sustenance. Years later, this Pharaoh, he sees this multiplication of Israel. He's threatened by it, and so he enslaves them. And all this drama plays out, these plagues and these miracles. Remember that? God sets them free. God's people find themselves yet again in the desert. And it's in this wilderness that they find themselves with no water except for bitter, unsuitable drink sitting in these filthy pools, stale, full of disease. And their situation is so dire that people beg Moses to go back to slavery. Moses knows better, so he falls to his knees in prayer. And by a miracle, God takes this awful sewage and turns it into the sweet water of life again. Look at this, Exodus 15, 22 to 25. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. But when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. He threw it into the water, and the water became Sweet. If you were to do a survey on the significance of water in the scriptures, you could spend an entire year just on that theme alone. There are these images, right, of streams and rivers and pools and cisterns and rain giving life where there was none before. All right, let me just scatter shoot a few of my favorites, though. The psalmist says this. You'll remember this one. God makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside... Still waters. In the book of Ezekiel, God takes a valley of dry bones and he brings this parched wasteland now to life. And, and by the time we get to the climax of the story, this is my favorite part, we see a vision of rivers flowing from the temple. Now think about this. First ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, and then a river so high, so flooded, that all you can do is swim through it. And with this picture of a deserted land now covered with the waters of life, God asks Ezekiel, son of man, do you see this? See, God uses water to reveal his power in the Bible. He uses water to reveal his hope. Water is used to teach us about God's restoration because water equals life. And God uses this same image flowing from page to page throughout the scriptures, pun intended. And by the time we open up the New Testament to the story of Christ, we find God choosing water to be the sign of the new promise of everlasting life in him. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel if you have your Bibles. Chapter 3, if you've got them on you. Jesus shows up. The Son of God comes down to this desert that is now our world, come to save these people who are lost, parched in sin, desperately searching for something, grasping for something to satisfy their longing deep within, left behind in the lush Garden of Eden. And Jesus comes on scene, and the first thing he does, his first adult act of ministry, he finds John the Baptist hanging out in the river, and he tells John, I'm here for you to baptize me. John had been in that river Jordan calling on people to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, he said. This crazy prophet in the middle of nowhere and this desert stream is baptizing a Jewish nation because he's convinced that the kingdom of heaven has come. And John takes this age-old practice, and it was age-old, of washing and preparation for worship, and he uses it now to prepare people for the coming Christ. In fact, long before Jesus came, if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-believer, a non-Jew, the only way to become a part of the flock was to declare your faith in Yahweh. If you were a male, to become circumcised, and otherwise, to do something called a proselyte baptism to be made clean. So just imagine, John is pleading for people to return to the Lord, to turn from their sins, and here comes this man walking towards him. You know that famous scene in the desert, like in the movies, where like the heat waves of the soil sort of distort the image? That's how I like to see this scene. Not sure if it's real or not. But here is real. Here is what's real. Here comes the Christ, right? And Jesus is about to take this water, this very basic understanding of washing, and use it now as the sign of a new promise in him. Matthew 3.15, he looks at John and he says, Let's do this now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Now think about this with me though. Jesus didn't need his sins washed away. There were no sins. Christ takes the entire concept of of washing and he's about to transform it into something far, far greater. Because the first thing that Jesus does in this baptism, this is why he's baptized, is in humility he joins a sinful, sewage-ridden, broken humanity in the river and by this very baptism he now identifies himself with us. And like the entire Great Lakes system pouring into that bubbling creek, in Christ the river reverses course. You ever jump into an ice-cold lake after a really long, hard hike? Like a mountain lake? You ever done that? You know that feeling that overcomes you like physically in that moment? No one comes out of a mountain lake going, man, I'm ready for a nap now. Right? There's something refreshing and awaking and revitalizing about that water, right? Or, or just think about like after an exhausting day out in the yard doing work what's better than an ice cold glass of water? See, Christ chooses waters of baptism to be his sign of promise for us. And yet, here's something else that's not much of a secret either this world is parched. You don't have to go on much of a scavenger hunt to find the results of two people who chose sin and left the spring of paradise for the wilderness. Our world is spiritual dehydration. All truth is now relative. Our culture has literally lost itself. There is no such thing as certainty anymore outside of the walls of church, outside of the sovereign plan of God. Never before, probably in any of our lifetimes, have we watched so many people become so distracted and so disoriented. And here's the hard reality. We live in a thirsty, desperate world. At night, one of the last things that I do with my day is I go and tuck my girls into bed. Long after they've been asleep, long after the sun's gone down, and I, I kiss them goodnight. And I, I'm looking at them almost every night, and I'm wondering, what is it that they're dreaming about? butterflies, princesses, sandboxes, slides. And then I wonder, God, how am I going to raise my kids in this chaos? How is it that we start our lives with such innocence, and then day by day, this life begins to chip away at it? One word, one scene, one experience at a time. How is it that Adam and Eve could have everything they wanted, their cups overflowing with the spring of life? and they chose the wilderness and the desert instead. And here's the hard truth. Every single one of us have made the same choice. You know, when you're working out at some point, your physical body tells you it's time for water. It warns you, right, drink or die. Rehydrate or suffer the consequences. Starts with your temperature rising, then turns to that sticky mouth then moves on to getting all shaky, your head starts to pound, and before you know it, you're passed out on the ground. Water equals life, but pay close attention, because this sermon isn't really about water. A few weeks ago, I went fishing over in the Yellowstone uh, Park for the first time, and it was a beautiful day, much like this one, which was good, because the fishing was horrible. I had one of those days where I was spending more time in my fly box than I was in the water. Um, so, on my way home, I'm driving back through the, the canyon and I'm looking for some redemption, right? So, I pull off to the side of the road and I walked over to this area where all these tributaries sort of came together on the Gallatin. And I just sort of casually tossed a streamer in, right in the middle of it. And first cast, I kid you not, I hit this heavy log. I'm like, great. So I kind of moved downstream a little. I started pulling up this, this snag to the surface of the water, and then for a split second, under the current was this iconic flash. You know what I'm talking about. Fish saw me, I saw fish. That was no log. It was a massive brown. So I chased him up and downstream. I was stumbling over islands. I tripped back into the river. Every time he'd see the net. We'd make eye contact. He'd dart back into the depths. And finally I landed that thing. And as I'm literally screaming praises to God, and I would, I'm not going to show you a picture because I want you to see it as even bigger than it was, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I'm realizing what made that catch so fun was that I got to watch it play out under the water. With my sunglasses on, I could see every minute. Every rock that I stepped on, every pull, I could see the flash again. It was what made that catch so thrilling inside, right? Like whoever invented polarized sunglasses, God bless them. I might be bragging, I might be preaching, I don't know. But here's why I share that story. It's not just about the water. That's just kind of surface level talk. Baptism is about the reality of God's promise underneath the surface. It's about what the water actually points to. See, Jesus walks out of that Jordan River, right? And then he starts teaching people things like this. Listen to this very carefully. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. I am the living water. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. You drink from that cup, you'll be thirsty again. You drink from the water that I give you, you will never thirst a day in your life. We could go on and on, too. The healings by the pools, the encounters by the well, the sermons by the seashore. And it all pointed to something far greater in Jesus. All the more so in the sacrament of baptism. See, water is the first adult act of Christ, and it's also his last. You might remember, as Jesus is hanging on the cross for the weight of our sin, for our transgressions, the soldier walks up, pierces him in the side, and blood and water come flowing. The blood to cover us, and the water to remind us of life. And just as the world thought that all was lost, the risen Lord comes to his disciples and he tells them, go and make more disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey the things that I've taught you. And remember this, I will be with you to the end of the age. See, I'm convinced the reason God chose baptism of all things to initiate us into the fold is that what we see on the outside, the water cleansing us, the dying to self, the rising to Christ, the renewal, the restoration, the new life, it's actually a sign of what God has done for us in Christ. And what we watch from the outside, if only we had those polarized glasses, we would know that what we're seeing in baptism is actually a sign of a far greater reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. Make note of this. The waters of baptism don't save us. There's not a biblical thought to that. It doesn't wash our sins away. The waters of baptism point us to what Christ has done for all those who put their faith in him. So I want to invite us this morning to think about two things this week, to pray about two things as we prepare for next Sunday. The first is this. If you have never been baptized before, um, it's not too late to do that. In fact, even if it's not next Sunday, it's not too late to do that. See me after worship. Text me, message me, email me. And I want to say this. I'm not inviting you. I'm imploring you this is a command of Scripture for God's people to be baptized. A joyful command. But second, if you've been baptized before, next Sunday we're also doing something we tried for the first time last year, which is remembering your baptism. And God knows we all need it. We all need it every day of our life, but all the more so this, this year with all the struggles, to remember in a moment what God has done for you. And so if God's been pulling on you to do that, and I've talked with a few of you who already are, um, we're going to have elders and pods, and what you'll do is come into the waters. Uh, Last year, I think it was Steve Saunders that came in. Steve, I think Steve Saunders came in his blue jeans. (laughs) Into the waters. I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life. And uh, come into the waters, however you feel God calling you. And we're going to put water on your shoulders and give God thanks for his baptism uh, in your life and for what God does for us in Christ, despite the wind and the waves. Water equals life, that's true. Because Christ equals eternal life. And as we're baptized in him, God puts this mark on us to say, for eternity, this one's mine. Now listen to this. Let me paint you a real quick picture of eternity before we close. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship it. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light, night or lamp of the sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. It's no secret life's been feeling a little bit like a desert lately. And if you feel like you've been walking in that drought, let that image remind you that our God is a life-giving oasis. And what our baptism signifies is eternal, everlasting life in Him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you loved us enough. Lord, looking down and seeing how we've made a mess of this life, Lord, that you wouldn't leave us there. God, we thank you for the gift of water, Lord how it quenches our thirst, but we think about the snow-capped mountains and how they, they bring water to this valley and we can look around and see that water is life every year. God, we can think of all your stories where you've proven that to be so, God, but it's just a physical reality, Lord. Would you help us to pay attention to the spiritual one? Lord, that in our baptisms, we are found in Jesus Christ, saved, marked for eternity. God, I just pray for every single person here that whether we were baptized 70, 80 years ago or we're gonna be baptized next Sunday, Lord, that it would be afresh in us. Lord, that you would quicken our hearts back to you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.